Hello, I'm Earl Fontanelle, and you are listening to The Schwepp, The Secret History of Western Esotericism podcast, online at schwepp.net. Episode 57, The Esoteric Philo. In the last episode, we introduced Philo of Alexandria, the first Western esotericist, and tried to give a basic introduction to his thought. We failed to give such an introduction, though we tried, in that Philo's thought is really complex, and we have a huge amount of his work, so there's an awful lot of evidence to go on. Also, Philo is not a systematic writer. That is to say, he doesn't lay out his philosophical theories in a straightforward, textbooky sort of way, but rather expounds them in the course of his scriptural exegesis, so that we pretty much have to read all of Philo if we want to say anything about any of Philo. As we shall discuss later in this episode, this methodology may be read as part of his esotericism as a writer. But in the meantime, we've introduced this seminal thinker, and listeners can consult the many excellent secondary works in the bibliography to the last episode for a fuller picture of Philo's thought, And the time now has come to delve a bit deeper into the esoteric aspects of Philo. As always, the definition of exactly what esoteric means is always subject to debate among scholars, and so, as always, we go with our official podcast working definition, wherein it is written, a discourse is esoteric when, one, it is presented as being accessible only to a select group, and two, when it is presented as being wisdom of a higher order. In this framework, we can identify three main aspects of Philo's thought which interest us as researchers of esotericism. Firstly, Philo is a perennialist. As we've seen, he believes that philosophic and or religious truths, for by interpreting every aspect of religious Judaism in terms of a secret philosophic meaning, Philo essentially dovetails the two realms of religion and philosophy into one, Philosophic and or religious truths are not only revealed at some given time, as when God revealed the law to Moses on Mount Sinai, but are also eternal and eternally transmitted. So what is the lineage which Philo constructs for the transmission of the perennial wisdom? This is one thing we should investigate in this episode. A lineage of wisdom transmission need not be esoteric, of course, but for Philo it definitely is, and we shall look at the ways in which he feels this knowledge is both transmitted and kept from the hands of the unworthy, unphilosophical, and uninitiated. A second point for investigation is Philo's theory of interpretation, his hermeneutics. What kind of view of language and of the truth value of words and numbers allows someone to read the scriptures in Greek translation, and yet to argue that there are divine truths hidden within the etymologies of the Greek words, rather than in the original Hebrew, or that the numbers of the texts have hidden meanings? This is fascinating stuff, and it turns out that the keys to making sense of Philo's hermeneutic are its esoteric presuppositions. Lastly, we will return to the problem of the doctrine of reincarnation in Philo, as this may represent a valid case study of esoteric knowledge sharing on Philo's part, or it may not, and represent rather the scholarly predicament of trying to figure out the doctrines of an author who may or may not be hiding his true doctrine under a veil of intentional obscurity. We'll get into this second hermeneutic problem, which faces those who try to interpret esoteric, esoteric interpretation. You'll see what I mean. So, let's start with lineage. We mentioned last episode that Philo propounded a pretty straightforward philosophic lineage, Moses, Pythagoras, Plato. 
But let's look a bit more closely at this and at how he situates these ancient sages, because it's kind of complex. Philo's Moses is, of course, something special. On the one hand, he combines the characteristic of a traditional Platonist sage with, on the other hand, those of a particularly Jewish prophet. In Hellenic terms, Moses is, of course, a nomothetes, a lawgiver. The Greek cities all had a traditional nomothete, who was the figure who'd given them their particular constitution. For Athens, this was Solon. For Sparta, it was Lycurgus, and so on. For the Jews, it was thus no stretch to say that this was Moses. He was the guy who gave them their laws. But Moses is also a theologos in Philo. This term doesn't mean theologian exactly. Theologoi in pre-Christian times were basically poets who told the story of how the gods were born, how they created the world, and so forth. So Hesiod was a theologos because his poem The Theogony was the classic Greek account of these matters, how the gods were born, how they created the world, and so on. But Orpheus, too, was a theologos. In fact, he became the theologos. And in later antiquity, authors would sometimes just say the theologos, and you would know they were talking about Orpheus. This was on account of the Orphic creation myth, which circulated in poetic form in antiquity, although unfortunately it doesn't survive in its full form anymore. See episodes 22 and 23 of the podcast for more on the legendary Theologos, his poems, and the esoteric religious movements which circulated under the name of Orphics. Now, to Philo, the book of Genesis was written by Moses. So Moses was assimilable to this model of a Theologos. But of course, the Jewish story is very different from the Greek take on these matters. For one thing, the Greek gods are themselves born or created or whatever, while the Jewish god is there before everything else. So it's very unhellenic. So Moses as Theologos is a Jewish reimagining of a recognizable Hellenic category. Lastly, Moses is, of course, a philosophos, a lover of wisdom. But to a Hellenistic audience, he's a philosopher, since by late Hellenistic times, the term philosopher had come to be almost a sort of job description. It was a recognized social category. We should note here, though, that Philo fully subscribes to a certain view of right philosophy, which also draws on Plato, and which sees philosophers, or at least the good philosophers, the, the right philosophers, as divinely inspired. We should also not underestimate the influence of Stoicism on Philo here. The Stoics, as we've seen, saw a divine logos inherent in the world, which the philosophic stage could sort of read, gaining knowledge of eternal truths in this way. So Philo is not calling Moses the only divinely inspired sage in his chain of transmission, on whom all the later ones drew, a whole list of names, including Pythagoras, Parmenides, Heraclitus, Empedocles, Zeno, the founder of Stoicism, and Cleanthes, Zeno's successor, and Plato, are specifically accorded divine inspiration, access to the naked truth, and are often described in terms drawn from the mysteries as holy initiates. So while Moses is definitely a special case for Philo, we might say he's the supreme philosopher. He's not the only philosopher with direct knowledge of the divine. And while Pythagoras and Plato specifically are mentioned as having learned the wisdom from Moses himself, others like Zeno and Cleanthes presumably gained their wisdom simply by unaided philosophy. So 
Moses combines three categories, nomothete, theologic writer, and a strongly sacralized type of philosopher, all of which were highly recognizable and highly prestigious categories to a Greek-educated audience. Now, it's been suggested that many aspects of Philo's biography of Moses take their inspiration from contemporary accounts of the life of Pythagoras, the familiar Greek figure who also combined the figure of the nomothete, since he founded a bios, or a way of life in the popular imagination, and the philosopher. So Moses, in some sense, in his depiction in Philo, is, is being patterned a little bit, at least, on Pythagoras. But Moses was also a Jewish holy man, in a particular Judeo-Platonist mold. As we mentioned last episode, Moses on Mount Sinai undergoes divinization. He's converted into a god, es theon. How does this work in a Jewish context? Well, by importing the idea found in Plato's Theaetetus and in other places in Plato of assimilation to the divine, theosis, the idea of the relationship between man and God, which we found in the Jewish scriptures, at least the Jewish scriptures read unesoterically, is pretty straightforward and contractual. Israel follows the divine commands and God helps Israel. There's no discussion of humans in any way becoming divine themselves in these scriptures. But in the Second Temple period, as we've seen, there was a lot of concern with angels, with commanding them, with interacting with them, and with encountering them. We also see, with the apocalyptic movement, the idea that humans could travel toward God through angel-assisted cosmic ascent. Now, there's little in Philo to make us think he even knew of texts like First Enoch or other apocalypses, but he was clearly part of this overarching move toward making the divine realm more permeable to special human beings. Now, we can add to this picture Philo's habit of referring to angels as gods, which we mentioned last time, and his theory that angels, daimones, and human souls were all the same sort of thing. So then we can see how a human soul might be called a god, if it were a soul of high enough caliber or quality. So this mashup of Second Temple angelology with Platonist metaphysics results in a new kind of holy man, the divinized prophet who is both Jewish and philosophical. In fact, Platonist. So that's Moses. Now in this discussion so far, we've concentrated on Philo's core lineage, the three big names. But we should quickly mention here that Philo also exhibits a more broad perennialist approach to history. We've discussed the idea of ancient barbarian wisdom see episode 8 of the podcast, as a potent idea within Platonist culture for locating philosophic truth. Philo is no exception, and indeed is our first representative of a fully-fledged Middle Platonist Orientalist. The Greeks, Philo tells us, have their traditional seven sages. These are the seven traditional figures who appear in many ancient Hellenic sources. The membership is a bit variable, but, you know, Solon of Athens is usually one of the sages, Thales, the uh, early pre-Socratic philosopher, Pittacus of Mytilene, and so forth. Most of these are nomothete figures, actually, people who gave laws to cities. So the Greeks have the seven sages, so the perennial wisdom, of course, is open to the Greeks even before Pythagoras comes along to learn from Moses. But the Persian Magoi also have great wisdom. They scrutinize nature and teach the divine virtues through silence. Now, what Philo means by kath hesuchian, through silence, is a bit unclear. 
But the meaning isn't that the magoi are silent, but rather that their silence has some virtue for teaching. We are probably looking here at some conception of Persian mysteries. Philo also praises the naked philosophers, the gymnosophists of India, who were a popular source of barbarian wisdom, whom we shall meet again in the podcast. The historical reality behind these figures is open to debate, but anyone going to India today will see a certain number of naked, dreadlocked sadhus walking around, and often smoking heroic amounts of hashish. And the gymnosophists may have been the ancestors of these itinerant holy men. So Philo displays, for the first time in surviving literature, a fully-fledged Platonist Orientalism in his construction of the perennial tradition. One other aspect of Philo's tradition should be mentioned here. In a curious work called On the Contemplative Life, Philo describes a group of philosophic Jews known as Therapeutae who are scattered all over the earth, but with a special presence at Lake Mariotis in Egypt. These folk have a special way of life. They live apart from the wider society, both men and women, and they devote themselves to a rigorous round of asceticism. So they each live alone in a kind of monk-like cell. And in this cell, they do allegorical scriptural exegesis all day long. Every seventh day, the brethren and sistren assemble, and their leader gives a homily from a text of scripture, which he interprets esoterically. And on the 50th day, they have a big get-together with a frugal feast, more textual interpretation, and then liturgical singing, after which they all return to their solitude. Now, what are we to make of this account of ascetic, esoteric Jewish philosophers? <laughs> Firstly, we have to decide whether the text is authentically Philo's, and many scholars doubt this. For one thing, parts of the text attack Hellenic philosophy, privileging Jewish philosophy as the only true path, something which, as we have seen, is not Philo's style. He is, in his other works, much more of a traditions of truth running in parallel sort of guy. The work specifically attacks the institution of the symposium, the traditional Greek drinking bout, as a vile and sordid affair, as well as attacking Plato's homoerotic dialogue, the symposium, on which see episode 33 and 34 of the podcast. But we know from Philo's other works that he loves the myths from the symposium and the myth of the double human being from that dialogue. He uses it in the interpretation of scripture in two different places. However, linguistic analysis has revealed that the on the contemplative life really looks like Philo wrote it. So what gives? Here we could devote an entire episode. Firstly, to who these therapeutae might have been, and here the elusive Essenes often rear their heads, who are referred to in Josephus. To what degree they are accurately described in the work, that is, were they actually something more like the Jews who produced the Qumran fragments, that is, definitely ascetic and ultra-pious, but in no way influenced by Hellenic philosophical allegory? Or were they really a kind of hybrid Hellenic-Jewish movement doing allegorical reading? Did the therapeutai exist at all? Is the work really by Philo? Are parts of it by Philo, but other parts not? Was it perhaps by a student or students of Philo continuing their master's work? down a more kind of pro-Jewish exclusionary channel than Philo himself ever pursued? We cannot answer these questions, and neither can scholarship in a conclusive way, though everyone is trying, so we'll just leave the question there. Whether or not we attribute the on the contemplative life to Philo, however, we should note that it 
is a very influential text in that it depicts an esoteric brother and sisterhood cultivating secret wisdom away from the society at large. A kind of esoteric Jewish secret society or way of life. Quite cognate to the Pythagorean bios or way of life, which had become something of a commonplace in Philo's time. And this text will appear again in the next episode, so stay tuned. So that's an outline of a perennial tradition, though we haven't yet said what's so esoteric about it. Now let's turn to the question of Philonic interpretation, and in the course of looking at that, we'll see how esotericism comes into this transmission of truth. Philo gives us a huge amount to go on here, scattered throughout his works. The picture we're going to draw here of Philo's hermeneutical techniques and ideas is a little more cut and dried and systematic than appears in his works, but we will stick to what he explicitly says, although he occasionally will say sort of semi-contradictory things on certain matters, depending seemingly on the context and philosophic register in which he's speaking. So first of all, according to Philo, not all myths are holy, or indeed suitable places to seek true wisdom. He holds a fairly typical philosophic, and indeed Platonist, uh, reserve regarding what he thinks of as vulgar myths and practices, such that the stories of God's creation by Moses are contrasted with the fictions of other theological myths. So some myths are just not a place you'd want to look for wisdom. The Hellenic mysteries, too, are corrupt, and Moses is represented as having driven them out from his society. Because Moses, of course, as a nomothete expressed in Greek terms, was a kind of a, a ruler of a city, as it were. But then, on the other hand, Philo uses the technical language from the mysteries all the time, probably more than any other Middle Platonist, for describing the recondite nature of the highest wisdom. So Philo is clearly making some distinction here between true and false mysteries. The true mysteries being the mysteries chiefly of esoteric interpretation of scripture. Indeed, Philo praises in many places a philosophical reserve, a kind of um, watching what you say, which has been called Platonist philosophic silence. The recipients of philosophic wisdom, which is more often than not described as the mystery in Philo, or the greatest mysteries, or so on, these people are carefully to be vetted. Philo's own Questionis in Exodum, the questions on Exodus, states that it is not to be distributed to just anyone, but only to the chosen few. So it has a secrecy clause in its introduction. So who are these few? Who are suitable to pursue the mysteries? Philo gives us in various places some indications, which we can kind of put all together to get a picture of the worthy esoteric Jew who might be suitable. They have to be of good character. They have to have renounced mundane things, and they have to be of a sufficient age. They have to be mature. And there are grades of initiation. The mysteries of Moses are the highest, but there are earlier interpretive mysteries as well, which Philo doesn't tell us. In this context, we can mention that God has a secret name, which may not be spoken among the uninitiated. Now, so far, we seem to have a set of strictures quite familiar from rabbinic Judaism which didn't really exist yet in Philo's time, but there's evidence already for this type of privileging of knowledge within Judaism, as, for example, the gendered discrimination that went on. So women are not privy to things that men are privy to, and so on and so forth. But the whole framework in Philo is expressed in terms of Hellenic mysteries. To take one example, the unspeakable name of God, 
which we know as the Tetragrammaton, the, the four-letter name, which Jews are not allowed to say even to this day, is, quote, only lawful to hear and say among those people who are holy and purified by wisdom in ears and tongue. So this is Philo actually taking and sort of riffing on traditional mystic sayings. But then we have a whole Platonist layer added to this. It is nous, or the intellectual part of man's soul, which is initiated into the greatest mysteries. And it's God's ineffable nature, which is the ultimate reason for this mystic silence. Because God is beyond human understanding, he can thus not be spoken about. To on retonestin, the existent one, is ineffable, as Philo says, using the mystic term aretos, which means should not be spoken, in its new register of cannot be spoken. So in Philo, we see this fascinating blending of ideas of cultic exclusivity and ineffability kind of occupying the same textual space, which is very, very interesting and will be very significant for the development of apophatic writing. Now, with all this valorization of silence concerning the esoteric secrets of scripture, we would expect that Moses was a pretty esoteric philosopher, and so he is. Moses speaks everywhere in enigmata, or esoteric meanings. This is because, as Philo tells us right at the beginning of the De Opificio, to speak the truth in a naked and unadorned style is unphilosophical. It is not worthy of the august nature of the divine subject matter. And Moses does not narrate myths, of course, but rather, and I'm quoting Philo here, typological exempla calling for an allegorical interpretation according to their subtextual meanings. <laughs> Philo specifically refers to two levels of textual meaning in the Mosaic writings, the spoken and the subtextual, reta and di hupanoion. This mode of expression is also called, in other places, symbolikos, the symbolic. Now, for the exact meaning of this term, symbolic, which is originally Pythagorean in the context of esoteric discourse, do check out episode 26 of the podcast, if you haven't already, where we talk with Peter Strzok, who has really investigated the roots and evolution of this term, symbolon, and its cognates like symbolikos. So, Moses' wisdom is expressed esoterically, and Philo's very explicit about this. Now, what exact method is Philo using to read or excavate these hidden meanings from the scriptures? If Moses has hidden them, how does Philo unhide them or reveal them? Broadly speaking, he represents himself as following the Stoic method of esoteric exegesis, which we discussed in episode 44. And the evidence is largely that this is more or less what he was doing. He's sort of following the Stoic style of reading, but there are special philonic characteristics to what he's doing as well. So first of all, a big difference is that the Stoics tended to find physics in their allegorical readings. So Hera in a given myth will represent the element of air, while Zeus will stand for the pneuma and so forth. That sort of thing is very typical of Stoic reading. Philo's reading is more theological as we'd expect, since he believes in, well, Platonist immaterial divinities and forms and so on, which the Stoics didn't believe in. Now, there's quite a bit of scattered evidence that Platonists were already adopting this basic Stoic methodology and sort of adapting it to their own ends in the first century, so Philo here is probably part of a wider trend. 
Now, secondly, as we've seen, Philo doesn't feel that in reading the writings of Moses, he's reading myths. He's reading these typological exempla, which require esoteric interpretation. Thus, the need which the Hellenic philosophic exegetes felt to explain away the apparent absurdities of their myths is not present in Philo. In other words, Philo doesn't feel that the biblical account on its surface is absurd and needs doing away with. In theory, both the surface meaning of the text and the esoteric subtext ought to be true. In practice, Philo sometimes passes over the surface meaning altogether, and one suspects that he sometimes feels a bit embarrassed by the apparent absurdity of some of the scriptural episodes. But we never find Philo saying things like, this is a manifest absurdity because clearly God would never act this way, so we must read it as an allegory of the soul. No, the whole of the book of Genesis is read by Philo as an allegory of the human soul. But he never says that God didn't really create the world in six days with a day off to rest, and so on and so forth. What we have here is a semantically overdetermined or multivalently rich text, or to put it in less highfalutin terms, Philo thinks that the scriptures of Moses can mean two different things at the same time. Sometimes they can mean more than two different things. Now a question arises here. Does he think that Moses actually meant to write all this Platonist philosophy into his stories? This is the question of authorial intent, which is always a tricky one, especially nowadays when we are told the author is dead. Now, the answer for most scholars would be, yes, Philo really does think this. So there's a certain naivete in ancient allegorical reading and literary theory more generally, which really does not move past the idea that anything in a text was intentionally put there by the author. So reading this way, we can see how it would be obvious to Philo that Moses was an inspired genius. Who but such a man could write such a text, one which both describes accurately the whole sacred history of the people of Israel, so it's a perfectly accurate historical account, and the best one going, and simultaneously delivers an esoteric allegorical account of the soul, metaphysics, sacred number, ethics, and everything else that Philo finds in the text a whole esoteric Platonist philosophy. Moses was necessarily a consummate and inspired literary genius, but of course he was a divinized inspired prophet, so we would expect no less. So I find this very fascinating because it's a, such a different way of reading a text from what we uh, generally practice nowadays. Now, another aspect of Philo's interpretive approach, which we mentioned briefly in the previous episode, is his esoteric arithmology. Throughout his work, but especially in the De Opificio, and doubtless in the tragically lost treatise that he wrote called On Numbers, Philo reads basically every number in the scriptures as metaphysically significant. This is, of course, a beautiful tool for making seemingly unimportant details, say three birds or two gates or whatever, anything that's numbered, into deep metaphysical signifiers, and for bringing yet more of the scriptures into the neo-Pythagoreanizing Platonist fold. In the De Opificio chapter 13, we learn that the creation of the world took six days. Why not seven, which is a most holy number, which, as Philo writes in that same work, is replete with secret divine meanings and metaphysical significance? Well, six, because six is a perfect number. That is, 
it is the sum of its own divisors. 1 plus 2 plus 3 equals 6. And 6 is divisible by 1, 2, and 3. But of course, with the extra day of rest after the creation, we can also get 7 with all of its sacred associations. So this is the way arithmology works. To the trained arithmological eye, you're always going to be able to find significant numbers. And you can have your cake and eat it too. You can have 6 and 7. We should mention here that Philo is one of our best sources for the arithmological tradition at this relatively early stage in antiquity. And we can also note that since for Philo the forms are themselves mathematical, that is, Philo makes a very strong connection between Plato's forms and mathematical entities, he actually has a very good reason for attaching a great deal of significance to numbers. For Philo, and for the Platonists more generally, the universe is at some level a mathematical entity, so that numbers should logically serve as a key to understanding the universe. But this brings us to the problem of pan-semioticism and the limits of interpretation. The scholar of semiotics, Umberto Eco, has coined the term pan-semioticism to describe a certain way of thinking and seeing the world and of reading texts, which he sees as characteristic of a kind of occult or esoteric mindset. And while I think Echo perhaps draws too sharp a line between quote, rationalistic modes of interpreting reality and esoteric ones, he does have a point. For some thinkers, everything means everything else, but in an appropriate way. Now, Philo is actually fairly tame in this regard. For him, everything in the scriptures means one, that Judaism is philosophically correct, two, that the correct philosophy which Judaism teaches is in fact what we would call a Stoicizing, Neopythagoreanizing Middle Platonism, and three, that anything in the scriptures will point to these two conclusions. So he's pan-semiotic in a very limited sense. But listeners will want to take note of this idea of pan-semioticism, which literally just means everything signaling, which appears again and again in the history of Western esotericism. When we get to the late Platonist Proclus, for example, we really will be dealing with a thinker whose entire universe is a self-referential web of signs pointing at each other. And everything really does mean everything else, because everything in a way is everything else. So the question of the limits of rules of interpretation becomes almost a joke. There are rules, but they're only the particular take on reality of a particular thinker. No strict logic or causal connections need apply. So Philo, unfortunately, never really addresses a problem hiding at the heart of his interpretive enterprise, which is, as a Jewish thinker reading his scriptures in Greek, but not only reading them in Greek, but etymologizing them such that he makes up fanciful connections between words based on the similarities of their forms, in which he finds philosophic meanings. Now, how can there be these presumably intentional hidden philosophic meanings in the etymologies of the Greek words of the text when Moses composed it in Hebrew? This is a problem that later esoteric thinkers will address in their search for the lingua adamica, or the true language, or the primordial language of mankind and God, but Philo never actually raises the question, which is frustrating but also fascinating, because he simply has no trouble finding these secret meanings in the Greek. In fact, he'll occasionally indulge in a bit of Latin 
esoteric etymology. And he also, as we've mentioned in the last episode, throws in the odd Hebrew word and etymologizes it, probably not based on a very deep knowledge of Hebrew. So there is a certain form of pansemioticism here in that seemingly the language, the natural language in which the scriptures are expressed, is a secondary concern. There must be, to Philo's way of thinking, some primordial and perhaps pre-linguistic sense which is carried through into the Greek from the Hebrew, such that the Greek itself um, expresses presumably the same truths through etymologies as the Hebrew would have done. Completely impossible, but very, very interesting. And this possibly could be expanded into reflections on a theory of language in Philo, but this is not the place to do that, unfortunately. Now, Philo's interpretive framework will return in the next episode, so perhaps we've said enough about it here. Avid listeners may want to pick up a representative text, and I highly recommend the De Opificio Mundi here, as it's a treasure trove of everything we've been talking about in this episode, to get an idea of how this rather amazing and sometimes quite subtle interpretive activity actually looks in practice. But now let's turn to our final topic for conversation. Philo is, as we know, a Jew, and he is also a philosopher of a particular type. Now, most philosophers who follow Plato and who are interested in Pythagoras will maintain a doctrine of reincarnation. But we've seen that Philo's Platonism isn't just a mold in which he crams the Jewish scriptures. The Platonist materials are also changed to make them more Jewish in some cases. So that, for example, the world of forms has become the divine logos in Philo, and the forms themselves, like everything else, are creations of the supreme ineffable God, rather than, in Plato's Timaeus, a kind of just pre-existing world order. Now, none of these changes existed in earlier Platonism, as far as we can tell, although it would certainly have a strong life in later Platonisms, as we shall see. So, we might expect that Philo, as a Jew, would reject the doctrine of reincarnation as one of Plato's problematic teachings, or perhaps as one that Plato didn't really mean literally, because once you open the gates of esoteric reading, after all, there's no doctrine which cannot be read as meant to convey a deeper meaning, rejecting the surface meaning. So he could have read Plato's accounts of reincarnation as referring to the internal life of the soul of an individual human, for example. Now let's back up for a second. In Second Temple Judaism, there were a few options with regard to the afterlife. Some groups, following a literal reading of the Jewish scriptures, thought basically that we should eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we shall die, to paraphrase the book of Ecclesiastes 8. So for these Jews, there is no meaningful afterlife, but a kind of ghostly shadow existence in a place called Sheol. But others, as we've seen in the apocalyptic texts, began in this period to think about a meaningful afterlife, something which the Greeks, in their mysteries in the Orphic movement and in some philosophy, like Pythagoras and Plato, had been thinking about for many centuries already. And of course, Pythagoras, Empedocles, and Plato had all taught metempsychosis, or reincarnation, which would have been an option on the table for someone who saw these thinkers as inspired sages who learned their philosophy from Moses, right? If they're teaching this and they learn their philosophy from Moses, it must be the case that Moses himself taught this. However, we don't have any evidence for any Jews in our period espousing the doctrine of reincarnation as far as I'm aware. This has led many scholars to assume that to do so would have been seen as un-Jewish and might have provoked a backlash in the Jewish community. 
This is, however, just an educated assumption, as we don't, to my knowledge, have any contemporary Jewish texts which specifically address or attack the belief in reincarnation. And it's certainly a priori possible to believe in reincarnation in Judaism. As the scholar Paul Raphael has argued, reincarnation after the 12th century is, quote, as kosher to Judaism as Mogan David wine. So let's see what Philo definitely tells us about his ideas about the afterlife. He makes no reference to a bodily resurrection, which is an idea that was in the air at the time, but as a Platonist with a low opinion of the body and of matter, this idea would not have appealed to Philo at all. He de-emphasizes any punishment after death, but emphasizes instead God's judgment of the human being and the human soul during its incarnated lifetime. And this judgment may be salvific at times. So the process of judgment is something that's going on while we're alive. So what we do, of course, is very important. We know that for Philo, the soul leaves the body at death. We know that there are cosmic elements to the afterlife. The soul returns to the cosmic region, the stars or the aether, and listeners will want to re-listen to episode 40 for a refresher if they're a bit unclear about their Hellenistic cosmology here. But basically the souls are leaving the earth and flying upward into the sky, but not going beyond the sphere of the fixed stars. We can also add to our picture here the fact that angels for Philo are the same thing as what the Greeks call daimones, and human souls are also the same thing as what the Greeks call daimones. Thus, human souls are in some way, at least potentially, the same thing as angels. And angels are described in various places by Philo. They are unbodied souls who live in the air. They're immortal, incorruptible, and they're made of the same sort of thing as the stars are made of, this kind of celestial supermatter that doesn't undergo any corruption. The angels act as intermediaries between God, who is beyond the outer heaven of the fixed stars, and the earth, which is at the center. Thus, angels are going back and forth between heaven and earth. So far, so good. Now, we've got a bunch of disconnected statements from Philo about the soul, its fate in life, and its fate after death, which involves going up into the sky. Now, in the treatise On Dreams 1, 137-139, Philo gives what would seem to be a clear account of the cyclical incarnations and reincarnations of souls moving in and out of bodies according to the celestial cycles. This is, of course, the meaning of Jacob's dream of the ladder stretching between heaven and earth with angels going up and down it. And Plato, read through Hellenistic eyes, is basically saying this in the Phaedrus and elsewhere. So the idea of cyclical reincarnations according to the movements of the heavens can be found in the Phaedrus myth if you want to read it in a literal sense. There is also a suggestion, drawing on the Phaedrus for its imagery, that the souls which manage to turn away from matter are saved from the cycle of incarnations and ascend on light wings and range the heights forever. In Jewish terms, they presumably join the celestial court of God's throne room. In Platonist terms, they join the divine noose, possibly, in this case, to be identified with Philo's Logos, but that's a bit speculative. But at any rate, they spend all eternity in the blessed presence of the forms themselves, and never descend back into the world of matter. Now, in addition to this one pretty undeniable passage in On Dreams, 
There are several other places where Philo at least seems to hint at such a doctrine of cyclical reincarnations with the possibility of freeing oneself from the cycle. Now here's the problem. Scholars cannot agree that Philo actually held this doctrine. And aside from the Andreem's passage, he's curiously evasive here. Or is he? Is he just being his usual non-systematic self? After all, pretty much any doctrine that we want to find in Philo has to be assembled from hints and brief statements in a number of different works and kind of put together synthetically, because Philo's just not systematic. So is Philo being extra cagey here? Is he perhaps engaging in the form of esoteric writing outlined by Leo Strauss in his book Persecution and the Art of Writing, whereby an author who is afraid of the repercussions of just coming out and saying something that he thinks on a given topic because it's going to get him in trouble, will instead scatter hints throughout his works such that only the truly attentive and philosophic reader can find these hints and put the pieces together, but the dolts and unphilosophic masses will miss them entirely. Is this what Philo's doing with his doctrine of reincarnation? This is one possibility, I think, and a recent book on reincarnation in Philo makes more or less this claim. But the debate is a stubborn one in Philonic studies. Everyone agrees that Philo believes in the immortality of the soul. Everyone believes that he thinks it has something to do with the heavenly regions. And everyone knows that Philo uses the term palingenesia, which literally means coming to be again or being born again, and could refer to reincarnation, but could also refer to some other cyclical process of growth or metaphorical rebirth. So, you know, when fundamentalist Christians talk about being reborn in Christ, they're not talking about reincarnation. Now, our interest here is not in whether or not Philo believed in reincarnation. But if you want my opinion, he blatantly did. And I don't really see why we need to assume that this was a totally unthinkable position for a first century Jew of Alexandria, though it may well have been a point that required delicate handling in the public sphere. But anyway, our interest is not in that, but in our own problem of esoteric interpretation as researchers, as scholars, as readers of this material. Every scholar who assesses all the evidence from Philo on this question will need in the end to assume a hermeneutical stance, and this will never be straightforward. We can, on the one hand, take Philo at his word in the De Somnis, on dreams, and say, yes, he definitely believes in cyclical reincarnations. Then we read all his other works where he's much less clear about this in the light of that conclusion and say, oh, here's a hint and here's another hint. And that all supports what we think about his theory about reincarnation. Or on the other hand, we can assume that Philo didn't hold this belief. We can then use the vast bulk of his works where he never speaks with absolute clarity on this doctrine as evidence to explain away the De Somnis account. So the De Somnis account is allegorical and it shouldn't be taken literally to mean rebirth. It, it talks, it's talking about uh, a metaphorical rebirth of the soul and so on and so forth. This is also rationally plausible. We might also take a more kind of structured approach, assuming that Philo's scattered references here and there throughout his works are in fact a Straussian form of esoteric writing. This type of writing, however, is in most cases impossible to prove because completely unfalsifiable. And it's up for the individual reader to decide for themselves whether or not the author they're reading is doing it. We as scholars of esoteric writers 
And let us remember that Philo, in his own works, repeatedly reminds us that the true philosophic wisdom is not for the many, and that to write it openly and nakedly is unphilosophical. So we might expect him to use a certain circumspection in his own works. We, as scholars of esoteric writers, are caught in an interpretive bind. I'm not here to show you a way out, just to point out the existence of the labyrinth. In the end, it all stays pretty esoteric. <laughs>